This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC, Boz Digital Labs, and Jay-Z Microphones. So get ready to rock. When Def Leppard made that record, sold 8 million copies in the first, like, you know, four or five months it was out. And that woke up the record industry to the idea that this form of music could really generate huge amounts of profit and numbers. And so that's what everybody started going after. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac, the speed to create, the capacity to dream. Now find out how awesome your studio can be at OWC. This episode is sponsored by Boz Digital Labs, offering you the coolest plugins for your mixes, like the Hoser XT and Plus 10 dB Signature Series. You can transform your drums with Sasquatch Kick Machine or Transgressor, get massive bass with Big Clipper, or add width and depth using Mongoose and Imperial Delay. All Boz Digital Labs plugins are available as fully functioning, no time limit free trials, so you can check them out on your mixes right now. Just go to bozdigitallabs.com or click the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode is sponsored by Jay-Z Microphones with the unique Golden Drop capsule design. The Black Hole Series BH1S and BH2 microphones with the hole in the middle for a one-of-a-kind shock mount combine innovative industrial design with careful craftsmanship to bring a world-class sound to your studio, resulting in a level of quality and detail in your recordings that you won't find in other mics. Go to jzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below and use the limited-time coupon ROCKSTAR right now to get an incredible 50% off. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Wynn Davis, joining us from Redondo Beach, California. And I'm actually going to read his bio to you because I think it tells his story really well, and it reads well like that. So this is, uh, this is coming from Wynn's bio. I started out playing guitar when I was 10, grew up in Southern California and was influenced by the music that was created here and in Northern California, Beach Boys, Doors, Canned Heat, Spirit, Jefferson Airplane, Frank Zappa, and all of it. I think the releases of 1967 to 68, the folk music, the rock music, the psychedelic music, the British invasion, all of that was the foundation of my ear. I played in bands and in 1974 moved to New York and performed throughout the Northeast at over 200 colleges and universities, and in 78, moved back to Los Angeles and was introduced to Ken Scott. Ken was already a legend, having mixed I Am the Walrus, producing the first three or four David Bowie albums, engineering the Beatles' White Album, etc. 
Ken and I became friends. We worked extensively together, and he passed on many of the EMI Abbey Road British audio engineer DNA that shaped many of the ways I approached the job as an audio engineer. In 1981, I opened my studio in Redondo Beach, California, and named it Total Access after a backstage pass I'd been given a few weeks earlier by George Massenberg when he was mixing front of house for Earth, Wind, and Fire. I imagined I'd be able to record my own music, but quickly found out that keeping a studio open required clients. By word of mouth, the studio gained a reputation as a place where young bands could record in a professionally designed space and come away with competitive results. Our clients started with L.A. punk band Black Flag and then a bunch of SST record artists, Husker Du, The Descendants, and others. And the studio flourished in the 1980s hair metal era, doing strings of albums by Dokken, Great White, White Lion, and others. The beach cities were always a source of amazing musical energy, and during the 1990s, Total Access recorded important post-punk artists such as Sublime, No Doubt, Pennywise, Slightly Stupid, and others. After nearly 40 years in the business, Total Access remains a place where prepared young talent can get a break and find affordable rates to record in the same rooms and on the same gear that their heroes recorded on. To keep this studio open in the current market climate, it hasn't been easy, but it's been worth it. There is nothing better than playing back a great performance to someone who has never heard themselves recorded properly. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Steve Ornest from Total Access Recording for making our introduction to Wynn Davis. So please welcome Wynn Davis to Recording Studio Rockstars. Wynn, are you ready to rock, man? I am ready to rock, always. Dude, I loved reading your your bio story. And as I was saying to you, I was I was. At first, I was going to kind of take it and, and reword it in my own, and then I realized it just re- it was so great to just hear it in your own words. So I appreciate you letting me just read your own bio out like that. Well, thanks for reading it, and I uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to share some of that stuff with you. Well, it's a really cool story, man. You've been through so much. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, in your own words, about the that early stage of recording. Were you recording in New York before you moved to L.A. and started working with Ken Scott? Yeah, when I moved to New York, I took a 3340 with me, and uh, a TIAC 3340, and recorded uh, the band I was working with on a little four-track uh, the whole time we were gone. And uh, so that was sort of the... Uh, I actually started recording stuff in my dad's garage on an Echoplex and bouncing the tracks out to a reel-to-reel wow. and, uh, <laughs> and, and using the Echoplex as a sort of multi-track recorders because I could, I could let the tape come around and when it came around to the right spot, I would ta- start the next part. And then when I got to the point where the parts started to generationally get uh, too far away, I would bounce it to a two-track and, and anyway, so I had had a little bit of tinkering around with uh, recording stuff before I went to New York. And then when we went to New York, I just recorded stuff there on a TX3340 uh, and tried to make that work. And now, is that a four track? Yeah, that it's the a four track. It's a quarter inch four track, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the upright reel to reel. Yeah, operate uh, uh, analog reel to reel. 
Um, I've, and, I've seen some of those, I think. Were there many different TX that looked similar in those yeah, models? There, there, I think there were actually two or three models of them over the years. Uh, they were, uh, they had this little switch on them called sound on sound and, uh, and uh, which basically made, meant that, you know, you could put some of the tracks into sync and, and then record on some of the other tracks. Uh, it was, it was pretty bare bones, but, uh, if you had a decent mic and you, and you, uh, had a decent spot where you could record, you know, if you could find a decent, decent space to record in, it came out pretty good. I mean, we, you know, uh, it's where I learned a lot about, uh, the value of a good performance as opposed to relying on a lot of gear. Yeah, indeed. Well, um, you know, it's sort of ironic. I, um, we'll probably come back and talk about this now, but with the vast capabilities of recording digitally and the, you know, the giant dynamic ranges and things like that, sometimes we really bend over backwards to try and make the recordings we're doing, doing today sound like those old uh, limited tape machines again because they had great character to them. Well, yeah, they had great character. And, you know... I don't know. I, a lot of times the limitations that people are faced with create, you know, really wonderful results. I mean, limitations are good things. And, you know, it's not necessary for you to have every tool that's ever been created at your fingertips. Yeah. It can it's be. important to have um, an idea of what you want to walk away with first and then figure out which tools you need. Instead of the other way around, it can be kind of a burden, even because it can yeah. really slow you down. I imagine yeah. that that um, you know, long before uh, you know, laptop computers that have a million choices in them, you might have been faced with studios that had way too many uh, recording channels on a console or or a vast mic collection that could be daunting as well. Well, you know, mic microphones and channels on a you know analog console aren't as intimidating, I think, as um, technology that you are presented with that you don't understand and that you're not prepared to use. Yeah. I mean, I think that as uh, the information age, you know, sort of took over the recording studio business and the making, the business of making music, uh, a lot of people who came from the generation I came from were left behind a lot of really very, very talented people who, you know, just were either not willing or unprepared or just had already had enough uh, and, you know, were left behind by that. But a lot of that, a lot of those skill sets were what made those records sound the way they did, not the equipment. You know, the equipment doesn't really make a, a record. The people who play on it and the people who engineer it do. And, uh, yeah, indeed. And and that's, and I think that's a lot of times instead of you know people are chasing you know the trend the right getting the right Neve transformer in their uh, in their ten seventy three, thinking that that will be you know the magic. But the magic isn't in that transformer. The magic is in their heads and in their fingers and you know, in their voices. And, 
And as long as we as engineers don't screw it up somehow, you know, that's where that's where it all happens. Yeah. So I feel like in my experience, one of the best ways to learn that lesson is to get your hands on that amazing transformer or that incredible tube compressor and plug in a really crappy musician through it and start to discover that your record doesn't sound as good as the record that inspired you to do all this in the first place. Yeah, well, that's that's so true. I mean, you can't you you can't make it. No amount of gear is going to make a, a bad performance sound good. And the truth is, as long as you're at least somewhat competent and responsible, it's hard to hide a great performance. Yeah, that's a good point. I like I that. Mean, it's a great quote. Think- it's hard to hide a great performance. Yeah, I mean, think about the fact that what these dreams, right, by, by uh, the Eurythmics, that thing was recorded on a four-track cassette recorder in an apartment. Wow, and I didn't was, know that. It was, it was a number one hit, right. Dave uh, Stewart recorded that, and it was on one of those uh, portable cassette recorders that they they originally recorded that track. And oh, that's true. And, you know, Annie Lennox, you know, you're, you can't deny, you know, her no matter what you record her on. That's great. That's great. What a cool story, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um, well, let's see. You know, you moved out to Los Angeles in 1978 and worked with Ken Scott. Um, talk, talk about that process. I mean, he's a he's a legendary, um, was a legendary engineer and producer, I think, and has done so much great stuff. Just tell us the story of that, if you don't mind. Um, in a band, the band that I was in before I moved to New York uh, had a, was sort of a hippie folk band that had a flute player in it, and uh, nice. And he and I were really, really close friends, but. It, we parted ways when we, when I moved to New York and, and I didn't see him for like four years. And then when I moved back to LA, uh, uh, I looked him up, I gave him a call and he was working as Ken's personal assistant. And, uh, and the first thing he did was said, Oh, you got to come over and meet this guy. I didn't know who Ken was at the time. I mean, I, I was, uh, I just was unfamiliar with, uh, with the music that he yeah. was working on and, and who he was, cause that wasn't what I was doing at the time. But he and I, uh, he and I became friends pretty quickly. And when, uh, when I opened the studio, he was, he was working at a different place out in the Valley. And I tried for a, a couple of years to get him to come out and you know he's a he's very much a creature of habit and so mm-hmm. you know he didn't want to he didn't want to change rooms he didn't want to upend his life plus i live in redondo beach and he was living in the san fernando valley and he, even in those days it was uh that's a trek yeah now now in la if you're five miles apart you might as well send a postcard yeah. yeah which <laughs> is one of the things uh, i'll tell you you know that's one of the things i'm so grateful for but that's another story. I have clients that, you know, spent months driving from the Valley, driving by, you know, 50 studios to get here, which I could never fully understand, but I was so grateful for. But oh, That's wild. That's great. Yeah. 
Anyway, Ken was one of those. And after that studio closed, the first thing he did is call me up. He said, I need a new place to work. And he came over and he played some stuff on the main monitors, which is what he likes to use. And he said, yeah, I can work here. And, you know, he worked here for like almost 20 years. Uh, wow. So um, when you moved from New York out to L.A., you were pretty quick to open up your studio. Um, what was what was that all about? I mean, did you already have um, a, sort of a real vision for what you want to do with your studio? Or was this like, hey, I think I'm going to try opening a studio? What, what was that point for you like? Well, I, I, you know, here's that story, and I'll try and make it as short as possible. You, you know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the movie Blow. It is a Johnny Depp movie. where. Oh, plays, right, yeah. Right, so that all takes place in Hermosa, Manhattan, Redondo Beach. That that whole, you know, that's where the movie opens up, and and this was the epicenter of the introduction of, you know, sort of on a commercial level, of, you know, the cocaine trade and all that stuff that happened, and. The studio here was the result of some guys who were in that business and talked to a few real estate developers into getting into it, and they started to build it. It went about uh, – they got it about halfway built and leased a bunch of equipment. And then, you know, as will happen when you have a bunch of drugs involved in something, you know, they found themselves – basically out of business and in debt and uh the studio went into receivership and i heard about it and uh i had been working at another studio you know as a as an artist and assistant in hermosa beach called media art and when i heard about this place coming up and i thought man maybe I should go down and find out what's going on with that place and and wow. i showed up I showed up at a at a hearing for the at a courthouse where they were going to dispense with all the assets and basically told the judge that I would take them all over. Uh, wow. And they they allowed me to do that, and then I came in here and just started trying to make it work. And uh, it was uh, way more than I bargained for. I thought it was, I thought it was just going to be uh, some place where I could I could take over and make a record with the band I was in, and then you know then we'd all be rock stars and we wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all rock stars now on this podcast, right? So it's a good thing. Finally. Um, well, what a, what a story. And and so when you, you know, heard about this, um, I'm sure that felt like a, a little bit of a big risky move for you, uh, like a bold move. And, and you moved in, you know, you were able to get this place that was kind of half finished where you had the you know, the big part of the structure of constructing a studio started for you and you just needed to finish it out. Right. Exactly. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fully, uh, you know, it had all the right gear to, to start off with, you know, for the time had an MCI 528 console in it and a MM 1200 and a couple 1176s and a few, uh, nice mics and, the guy had somehow met 
or been introduced to Dean Jensen, and they had retrofitted the MCI 528 with Jensen uh, transformers and microns. Oh, cool, cool. And so that console actually sounded pretty darn good. And still to this day, sometimes I'll put on one of those old tapes, and I'll think, wow, man, that console really sounded great. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's uh, cool. I also have an MCI here. I have one um, that Jeep built custom for Criteria Studios. Oh yeah. So it was the it was a criteria through the 1970s. So it's a it's before the 400 and 500 series. Oh wow. Yeah, those were good. The, those guys those guys did nice work in those days. I mean, there is the, the those were nice consoles. So they're uh, they're hard. They were hard at the end of the lifespan of that console for us. The thing that uh, basically drove that console out of the studio for us was that all the switches and pots and stuff just became unmanageable. Yeah. And, well, that's sadly because the uh, the name MCI, some people joke, stands for most connections intermittent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. well, well, you know, cool. that's, a, and you know, the funny part of this, this is sort of a complete aside, but in those days, Brent Averill, who went on to become, you know, have yeah. a whole... His business started as he had this business where you would take your pull your modules out, and he had this sonic bath, this high, this sonic bath that you would put your modules in, and he would run this uh, solution, you know, through it, and it would clean all the pots. And when you put them back in, it actually worked really well for oh maybe you know three or four months, and then they would just go back to as bad as they ever were. But uh, <laughs> But it was really a, it was it was like getting a new console for for a short time, and that was uh, it was funny. I remember Brent uh, doing that. It was it was fascinating that he. That's wild. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear the stories of of all the various businesses that can spring up around the recording industry, just by based on need at that time. Oh yeah. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix masterbundle.com to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, well, so, okay. So you started the studio, Ken came back later and listened. Um, did, were you pretty confident that when he came in and listened to your control room, he was going to love it? Or were you just like fingers crossed? I mean, yeah, what, totally what, what for you, crossed. what for you was part of the process of making sure that your control room sounded great? Well, I had a guy here uh, who had worked at Wally Hyder during the height of Wally Hyder's studio. His name is, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't know if this is some kind of practical joke by his parents or whatever, but his name is Peter Butt. And Peter uh, is somebody who any of the older folks who listen to this podcast know about because he managed Wally Hyder when they had like 52 MM1200s running and one of the legacies of Peter's tenure there was that they went for 
almost two years without a single card failure in one of those machines. He is a brilliant service tech and a very, very bright, uh, bright guy. And I got him because he lived in San Pedro, which is sort of adjacent to where I live. I got him to to be our our tech, and he turned and he tuned our uh, Yuri. Uh, what were they? They were eight uh, thirteens. Yeah, the Yuri eight thirteens. He tuned our Yuri eight thirteens in a way that that just made them sound absolutely. Fantastic. And we loved those speakers and I loved them and I, I could listen to them all day. And it turned out that when Ken came in, he had never worked on them before, but he liked them too. And for whatever reason, the the nodes, the sonic nodes in this room and those speakers all sort of lined up and agreed. And they always sounded great in here. I was really sad when, uh, when Altec stopped uh, being able to uh, basically rehabilitate those drivers so that they sounded right anymore. Yeah, because yeah. Those, there was a time when they just stopped working. Now, yeah. do you remember the sort of um, introduction of the near-field monitors in studios? Because, I mean, for a time, the big speakers in the in the walls, that was what everybody listened to, right? Yeah, the big speakers in the soffits, which I still have, but uh, I... Um, yeah, well, near fields uh, were something that I embraced, you know, completely because uh, unlike uh, a lot of the people who worked here in those days, uh, I I didn't like to listen at super high uh, sound pressure levels. Uh, it's just there was just something about it that just overwhelmed me. And uh, as an engineer and a mixer, so. Um, I, I, yeah, the uh, near fields were something that I worked on. I worked on a whole bunch. I mean, I went to every sort of hi-fi. I went through a lot of speakers. <laughs> I went through a lot of speakers trying to find something that, that I could relate to and that sounded good and gave me good results. And, uh, and then um, one day I walked into a session that uh roger nichols and he was using meyer hd1s and uh i went oh wow i'm gonna get some of those and uh and uh it was an it was a it was a a transformative moment you know putting uh john meyer speakers on the console and uh and immediately going through this transformation with all of my clients where up until then, every time I would bring somebody in to listen to a mix, there was all this like nitpicking through stuff. All right, why don't you solo the hi hat and can I hear the you know guitar? You know, it just all that stopped. I mean, literally in a day, and people just started saying stuff like, "Could you just turn the vocal up a little bit?" And then they would go, "That's perfect." And all of all the nitpicking that went on in in my work with my clients just immediately stopped, which I think says something about having the right presentation uh, environment for your mixes. That's an important, super important uh, 
component of, yeah. of having a successful relationship with your producer, the artists you work with, having something that when you play it back for them that is relatable and actually expresses your vision of their music uh, properly and accurately. It yeah. looks like you guys still have the HD ones. I'm looking at the website now, and uh, that's yeah, what's I up never, on the I right? never stopped using them. Uh, and most of the people who come in here who listen to them, even if they have been working on other stuff, they they'll leave them up and they'll and they'll use them. Uh, I recently had the uh, good fortune to install John Meyer's big soffit mounted speaker in our. Uh, in our soffit, which is called a, a, an X10 system, which is comprised of a couple of 15-inch drivers and four 18-inch subwoofers. And and that system sounds incredible at a high sound pressure levels. So that's just, I don't listen to them that way, but... Uh, yeah. But it's a it's a great system if you know you want to somebody wants to come in and blow their hair back. Yeah. Um, talk about the progression of mixing consoles and tape machines and stuff like that in at your studio. We started out with uh, MM eleven hundreds, and that man that I was talking to you about earlier, Peter, um, was a renowned and world famous expert on those machines. Those machines had a lot of problems. They had motor drive amplifiers that would were very uh, idiosyncratic let's say they would uh, they and the mm1200 had speed issues from head to tail and stuff and peter was a genius at solving those problems with that machine even though it required some fairly uh, continuous work and adjustment and attention it was uh, it was the best machine by, you know, some people like Studers, some people like Ampex. We yeah. always like Ampex around here. And then uh, when when we got rid of those machines, we, I, you know, sort of went and sided with, uh, no no pun intended, but I, I sided with Alan Sides and we bought ATR-124s. Oh, cool. Yeah, we love those machines. Well, it's interesting, you know, hearing you talking about keeping a machine tuned and running. I think we forget, you know, today, the the things that you have to keep tuned and running, uh, like all that's left is the piano and the guitars, you know, and maybe the, and the drums. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you know, but back then it was the recording gear too. Oh yeah, that was. I, I keep trying to explain to you know the young people that work with me that man, you guys have got it so easy. You don't realize that on all these sessions where <clears throat> uh, you're showing up an hour early to pull mics and stands and cables and everything, add another hour and a half to that when you're going to have to uh, align, bias, print a set of tones for a new project, and then check that every single day when you come in. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just a whole nother layer of time and effort and attention that not everybody did. But if you wanted to do it professionally and, you know, that's what happened when Ken got here, all of that stuff became required. I mean, we, you yeah. know, we couldn't start a session without going through all of that stuff. And, you know, he he expected it and he wouldn't. He wouldn't have it any other way. And he really taught us a lot about the discipline of, of uh, 
looking after all of those details because because they matter and they did matter and they still matter but yeah in different ways well i remember um you know when i'm using my tape machine which ha- i haven't been using in a while but um you know the process of tuning it and and aligning it and everything you didn't have to do it you could just turn it on and go and see what happened but every time you did it and you did it well your session just sounded better in the end everything That's sounded right. better you know that's right. And that's why you do it. And because, and the other reason to do it was that it was a professional responsibility to your client. Because when you went, when they, if they needed to go someplace else and they took those tapes with them, you wanted wherever they went and wherever you went with them or wherever those tapes followed them, you wanted the work that you did to be able to be represented properly and without. A, you know, an alignment, a set of tones, you know, good documentation on the on the real boxes and all that stuff. You couldn't, you know, you didn't have any way, uh, they wouldn't have any way of, of replicating the work they did. With yeah. You. So it was, that was, uh, it was super important. And I, and I find that today, the, you know, the modern version of that is, are, are things like, you know, backing up your digital sessions properly, labeling things properly from Pro Tools sessions to Pro Tools sessions, all that kind of stuff. There uh, is no standard now. I mean, the gram, the technical wing of the, of the Grammy guys have tried to put together some stuff. But, you know, with so many people who work and, you know, we work now with so many, with so many people who do stuff on their own and don't have the privilege and the joy of being taught anything by and, and you know and existing in any kind of framework of of a professional legacy of you know how do you how do we do this so that everybody can uh, participate and so you'll get you know sessions and stuff that just are so confused and so. And so difficult is a ball of yarn, and and that's part of our job now, right? Is that we is unwinding those balls of yarn. From, <laughs> yeah, right on. Uh, it's it's in in some you know I think uh, somebody just posted on Facebook the other day. Uh, I mean, right after the Grammys, that he thought that uh, uh, he's somebody that you've interviewed. Gosh, I can't. Uh, anyway, he's <laughs> he said that there should be a Grammy for for all the seconds and people who are doing the soul crushing work of tuning vocals and realigning drums. And yeah, big time because these people are, you know, toiling away in the salt mines of these studios, you know, bringing stuff, you know, trying to make people, you know, who don't really, uh, who didn't bring it in the studio with them, you know, sound like they did. Well, and, and also I would suggest, um, that, most of the records that have won Grammys in the past, you know, five to 10 years have probably had a lot of, you know, backroom work done on them as part of just this, no. you know, this big production process. There's absolutely no, no question about that. Well, so um, your studio has had such a wonderful history of things. Oh, I guess you were just talking about the consoles. What what came after, you know, the early MCI? I think you have something different in the photos now. Yeah, there's a. We bought a. We bought an Amec. Uh, it was a. It was a weird choice. We were, you know, Ken really wanted a, an SSL, um, 
and I I never really cared for uh, the sound of an SSL. It sounded, you know, to me, to my ear, it was not something that I related to. I was I was definitely more on the the Neve side of things than 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 mm-hmm. I would have been in in that sort of uh, solid state side of things. And uh, so we decided to buy an Amec. Uh, and, uh, well, which and one did you get? It's a, it's called the G2520. And, uh, it was the one that was, uh, that was, uh, they only built probably a half a dozen of them. There were a couple of them down in Nashville for a while. And, uh, uh, and there were a couple of them over in, in Asia and, I think the most notable version is that they recorded uh, Joshua Tree, a lot of Joshua Tree on a twenty-five twenty. Oh, interesting! Uh, that, that they installed at uh, the Edges Studio. Um, and, and when was this that you guys would have put that in? Is that the that same console been, that 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 uh, survives today? Yeah, that, that would have been in eighty-five. Yeah. Wow, what a trip! So that's pretty wild. So. What does it mean to try and maintain a piece of gear from 1985 to 2019? Is it a uh, challenge it, at times? Uh, it's a, a constant challenge. I mean, when once these consoles get to this age, uh, it's a it's a constant challenge to keep them running and and operating the way that they were designed to. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a it, it's still worth it, but you know it's a challenge. I mean, you, I mean this console has already had every capacitor in it changed twice. Wow. So, <laughs> and it's a and that's a huge undertaking. I mean, you know, you it, it's hard to describe really uh if you've never had to do it then um it's a uh, lot. You got to pull out each each car probably <laughs> has lots and lots of uh capacitors on it. Yeah. You have to take over the studio for weeks yeah. or do you just yeah. do one at a time over over time? No, I think that we tried that once and it was sort of frustrating because you'd be going down the line and all of a sudden you'd, you'd go, hey, man, this this console doesn't have as much – this this channel doesn't have as much bottom. And, and you realize, oh, we didn't do that one yet. So yeah. it became a – so after – at that point, we just started doing them. We would just block out some time and – and pull all the modules and snip out a you know buckets full of of uh, uh, capacitors and replace them and then go through the recommissioning of each of each module as you know and of course you'd find one or two cold solder joints every two or three modules and have to pull it out it's a it's a it's a process i mean uh, studios uh, are things that you have to have a love for it if you want to have one. Uh, mm-hmm. Way easier to just plug in your Pro Tools gear into your computer and uh, and use uh, some little moving fader Yukon interface and yeah, forget about it. But I can tell you without any question in my mind whatsoever that uh, working in a hybrid recording environment where you have the best of both worlds is is the is one of the greatest things that has ever happened to music. I mean, that's cool. I I listen to 
Uh, I listened to the the five one mixes the other day of Abbey Road. I mean of uh, of Sergeant Pepper's, and uh, it was life changing. I mean those guys. That's and that's something you could have never done until now. There's no way those guys could have gone back and reassembled, you know, all those original performance tapes and taken all the bits and pieces that they were able to find in the archives, reassemble them, realign them so that performances that up until now had only been heard, you know, after like maybe four or five generational, uh, you know, Co- copies. Yeah. Right. Now we're hearing some of those, some of those performances off the original tapes that, that were able to be. And, uh, yeah. Interesting. I think those I think those that work that those guys did, you know, some people are purists and I understand it. But gosh, for me, it was just so awesome to hear that's cool in that way. And and anybody who hasn't heard it, go out and find a really good spot. Find somebody who's got a great five one system and buy it and listen to it because it's so much fun. That's wild. Well, let's rewind a little bit and let's uh, get away from the. The, the tech geekery stuff that we love so much. And let's talk about the music. You know, here you are in Redondo Beach, California. It's, it's post the, uh, um, the cocaine rush of, of stuff in the 70s. And now we're into the 80s. And you've connected with SST Records, you know, the, the great influence in punk rock coming from the West Coast. Um, talk about some of the bands that you worked with at that point. And, and I'm thinking that that, uh, did that, that happen first and then was followed by the the 80s hair metal bands or were they yeah, all happening absolutely. at the same time? Well, sort of at the same time. They sort of overlapped. But yeah, SST started uh, first. Greg Ginn, uh, you know, is a, a pioneer and all that stuff he, and a founder of Black Flag and and the founder of SST. And, you know, such a he's a remarkable person, really. And uh, and he needed <clears throat> we had this recording studio space and he needed a place where he could and this is more of sort of a business relationship he needed a place where he could make these records and know what the financial commitment was going to be right. in advance without having to go say okay how much is the, this record going to cost me and watching it you know spiral out of uh his financial control mm-hmm. so we uh so we made him a deal where we would sell him uh, a, a fixed amount of time at a fixed rate that he could afford. And then he would just tell his bands, this is how much time you've got. And if you don't make a record, you don't have one. And that's it. That's you know? great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he would, <clears throat> I mean, Husker Du came out here and recorded Metal Circus. And they literally drove all the way from Minneapolis to Redondo Beach in one go, and they pulled up into the parking space, and the van belched out a, a giant, you know, puff of smoke. And I, I, I think they actually had to have it worked on before they could drive back. And they came in and uh, they started working with uh, with a guy that had been working with me at Media Arts, and his name is is Glenn. I can't remember his last name, but everybody knew him as spot and he came in and uh started working that session and we set up 
the band. And I think Greg came in and said, you have two days to make this record. So hurry up. And uh, the band came in and that night, the first night they were here, they, uh, I left them and they were playing and they were doing takes. And, uh, the next morning when I came in, they were all where I left them, except for they were all asleep, you know, literally with their instruments in their hand. And when I came in, I walked into the, into the control room and I said, Hey spot, what's going, what's going on? Spot hit the talk back and said, okay, you guys. And they all just sort of stood up like, you know marionettes and he said let's go and he hit record and they started playing like it was incredible what a story man that's great yeah and you know they were and they were driven and they finished the record and and it's it's amazing piece of work i mean if you listen to that record today and you realize that you know how young those guys were what a what an amazing creative statement it is and the fact that they just did it all literally in 48 hours uh uh without leaving the studio i mean i i don't know i don't even know if they ate while they were here i mean it's wow uh, yeah that's great man i love hearing stories like that uh um i i know do you remember whether the meat puppets came out and recorded with you there they too? did yes uh-huh they, they they recorded here too yeah, yeah uh-huh. i think we heard some of that story before on the podcast as well so it's it's cool stuff i mean i was in college in the midwest in st louis in the in the 80s second half of the 80s so we were you know discovering these sst records as they would show up through friends and record stores and on the local college station and here you were making them all <laughs> Yeah, they, I don't know. Did you ever hear that band that SST did called St. Vitus? No. They were like, out. oh, yeah, they were they were the punk version of uh, Black Sabbath. I mean, they were a bunch of kids from San Pedro who came from sort of the uh, – they they were all first generation Mexican kids, and they were playing this really great version these these really great versions of these really dark progressions. And instead of being this frenetic, crazy punk stuff, it was really slow, dirty stuff that was way ahead of its time. Uh, nice. So so interesting. I, I, I've always wondered why we have why those things those records never uh, reappeared in uh, in any sort of a critical way because they were they were so interesting and unique at the time. And, That's wild. Well, now yeah. how how about uh, do you have any stories about the Descendants or any of the other bands from SST? Well, you know the only thing the Black Flag. You know, I, I got a call from. Uh, from the Redondo Beach Police Department one day when I was, you know, at about two thirty in the morning, and and uh, the guys were standing on top of the roof shouting at you know howling at the moon and all the neighbors in the neighborhood. It, it, they were they were everything that uh, <clears throat> that you would expect. I mean, they yeah. were they they had this tremendous energy uh, and uh commitment to what they were doing and and 
I feel really fortunate. I I have to t- say, to be completely honest, that I didn't completely understand how important those records were going to be. You know, when we were making them, I was just so I was grateful t- to Greg for you know uh, allowing us to to have enough business from SST and enough revenue to keep the studio's doors open. But oh, I didn't really understand uh, how important and and fun those records were going to be later. Yeah. And uh, I'm so gl- grateful that that all that stuff happened here. And uh, and looking back on it, it's a it's a it's it's a wonderful memory. I mean, it's a it's a great it's a great part of the studio studio's history. The uh, they that whole scene for us sort of got um, displaced when we started doing when the Sunset Strip hair metal scene started to take off and the major labels started signing bands and giving them stupid amounts of money to make you know mm-hmm. records that were. Um, I don't know how uh, how to say this in any polite way, but you know, pretty forget forgettable records. I mean, some of obviously for some people who were alive then, they were really important. But I don't think they made the same sort of uh, critical, creative statements that a, a lot of these, a lot of those earlier punk records made. And anyway, they were, uh, but they did allow the studio uh, a different sort of. They gave us a profile with the with the major players and the labels in, in Los Angeles that allowed us to, to, uh, to stay open. Well, so I, I would, I would propose that the eighties hair metal era did sort of create a sonic statement. You know, it, it sort of created a sound that is, that will forever be there. Um, and I want to get into that more and deeper and talk about those specifically with you in a minute when we come back from the break. But, um, before we do, uh, was, was the, Early Red Hot Chili Peppers was that also part of um, the the sound and the bands that were coming in to um, to work with you guys at that point, or were they were they elsewhere? No, they. I don't. We never saw those guys in this room, but okay. uh, but but they were. Um, I think that they were certainly part of that whole scene. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> that's there was, I remember it. Yeah, the the Beach Cities had their own uh, their own punk scene, and you know it was it was important. And then there was the Hollywood punk scene that had X and Fear and a whole bunch of other bands like that. That uh, <clears throat> and they did sort of overlap. We did a we did a record. I think Michael Wagner actually recorded. You know, Michael's a, lives out there in Nashville now. Yeah. And he worked here for a long time. He started here when he first came to the United States. Oh, cool. He worked here for about, uh, I don't know, three or four years. He did a lot of records here. And one of them that he did was was an, uh, uh, a demo for X when he was actually auditioning to do that record that he ended up producing for them. And uh, it was the record that their cover of that song, Wild Thing. You remember that? I don't know if I remember that one specifically, but... Um, well, it appeared in this movie about this baseball movie that uh, uh, that uh, 
that had, uh, I think it had Kevin Costner in it or something like that. Oh, yeah. right. Build it and they will come. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, not that baseball movie. It was another one where I think it was about a pitcher and he was the catcher. And, and, uh, oh, was that the, uh, um, they called it Wild Thing and they, and they played the song all the way through the movie. Was, I think, I bet you X made as much money from that, from that, uh, song appearing in that movie as they did in their whole career. That's a trip. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting to me too is to, hear the stories and realize just how vast Los Angeles is that you literally can have a variety of different scenes within the same genre happening in different parts of the city. You know, Nashville, on the other hand, is like Nashville is Nashville. Um, And you, you know, if it's happening in Nashville, it's happening in whichever neighborhood you're in. Yeah, Um, Nashville is uh, is an amazing place. I mean, it has been. I mean, I grew up as a kid riding a Greyhound bus between Texas and in Los Angeles with my mother and every, every diner that, uh, that we would stop in, you know, there was country music playing in it. And that I have a lot of that in my DNA too. And I still love it. Mostly the, mostly the classic stuff, but I mean, the studio I was working in uh, when I, before I opened the studio, uh, uh, I used to see Vince Gill running around all the time before he moved down there. And uh, he was an infuriating person because, you know, by that time I'd already been playing guitar for like 15 years. And I, I, I forget, but I, I remember he's, he picked up a guitar one day and just decided he was going to start playing. And it was already like two years later, he was better than everybody in the whole that's true, man. He, he's such an amazingly talented person. That's cool. Well, hey, uh, we'll take a break here for just a second and um, come back in for the jam session. Rockstar is a reminder that we'll have links to stuff we're talking about, including a YouTube playlist where you can go listen to some of these records. And um, we'll try and add some more of them after the interview, too. Just make sure that there's, they're all in there. Um, and if you're listening on your mobile device, just click through in the show notes. You should find it there. If you're on your desktop, just go to rsrockstars.com and look for the Win Davis episode, W-Y-N, and, uh, and you can see all the stuff we're talking about there. We'll see you in just a minute for the jam session. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock. OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. 
If you want to design and build a great house, then you're going to need great tools. You could build it with an old hammer and some nails, but it's a whole lot easier to use an air compressor and a nail gun. Well, the same thing goes for mixing. If you really want to create a pro-sounding mix, then it makes a lot of sense to start with a great toolbox of awesome plugins. This is where Boz Digital Labs comes in to help you get killer mixes easily, quickly, and creatively. Provocative will make your vocals sound lush and wide. Transgressor and Manic Compressor can help your drums leap out of the speakers. Gaty Weighty and Big Beautiful Door offer unique new ways to tighten up your tracks, while the wall will make sure your mixes are in your face and competitive. And my favorite is Sasquatch Kick Machine, which can transform your kick drum from sounding like a home studio cardboard box into the perfect punchy kick without using samples or triggers. To download your unlimited trial of any plugin now or get one of Boz's free plugins, go to bozdigitallabs.com and put the best in your mixing toolbox. Click the link below in the show notes to learn more. If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mics in Riga, Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique Golden Drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting color and distortions. Make sure to check out the Black Hole series BH1S and BH2 with the awesome looking hole in the middle of the mic, combining innovative industrial design with meticulous electrical engineering to help your studio sound incredibly expensive for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, if you use the coupon ROCKSTAR, you will get an astonishing 50% off. I got one. You're hearing my voice right now on the BH1S. So what are you waiting for, rock stars? Go to jzmike.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Wynn Davis joining us from Redondo Beach, California, and his studio, Total Access Recording Studio. And uh, we're going to jump in and talk more about... Um, all kinds of good stuff, but we're really going to dig into the 80s hair metal scene and then the post-punk scene as well in California. When are you ready to jam? Yeah. All right. Um, it, again, it's just so amazing that you um, can kind of share stories about Ken Scott and who he is. And you were telling me some of the amazing Beatles records he worked on. I wondered if you wanted to just kind of introduce us to him a little bit more. And what were some of these records that he worked on? Oh, I mean, the list of stuff that Ken worked on is, you know, you know, astounding, actually. I mean, he spent the day here one day making a demo CD for himself, which was, you know, sort of heartbreaking, thinking that somebody with his credentials would need a demo CD. But it started off with I Am the Walrus, which he mixed at EMI. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing on the CD, you know, and it just went through. Just a litany of important rock acts, including Bowie, and but the the thing that uh, you know that most people know Ken for is that he engineered. It was you know an important part of the of putting together the uh, the Beatles White Album, uh, which is uh, a, a really interesting sounding record, and it was uh, it's it's really a uh, a testament to Ken's skill set because. I think by all accounts, the Beatles at that point were working at the most furious pace that they possibly could. There, it wasn't, uh, they just had 
I mean, they were in a creative space where they didn't want to wait for anything. They didn't want to wait for any mics to get set up. They just wanted to go, 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 get it, get it, get it, get it, you know. And and uh, and when you listen to that record, uh, if if any if you the next time you listen to anything off that record, keep that in mind because they were they were really uh, they were moving at an amazing pace. So Ken and, had to run around a lot. In other words, yeah, right. And and there was no. There was no, let me check that mic. You know, it was like, you know, you set up the mic and it was like, okay, what's taking so long? Let's go punch in. Don't worry about where the levels are set or how the compressor is set or whatever, you know, just <laughs> let's, let's get going. Hurry up. That's yeah. wild. Well, I, I have to confess, I'm sort of guilty of liking to work that way too. Um, yeah. When I'm playing music, I'm just the worst. Usually a lot of times I have an intern helping me engineer and I just give them hell. I, I I give them a hug and apologize afterwards, but I give them hell while they're recording me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's a hard that's a hard seat to be in because you know there's no way for somebody to know in advance. There's no. I wish there was just some magical, you know, this is the setting that won't screw anything up. But you know, it there those those settings are are hard to come by. You know, most of the time. Well, in recording in something like Pro Tools these days or digital, it's like, there's so much wiggle room. You know, oh, it's yeah. like, if your level's not right, who cares as long as you didn't completely distort it. You can always adjust it a little bit later. Things, the the tools like clip gain and stuff. Can you imagine like, I mean, you don't have to imagine. You probably did try and invent clip gain on a piece of analog tape back in the day and it probably wasn't easy. No, it wasn't easy. And, uh, and yeah, there are some pretty amazing ways now of forgiving some what used to be pretty much unforgivable sins. I mean, for instance, if you're recording in 32-bit, you can uh, recover stuff that was recorded at too high a level. Excuse me, I need to... Oh, it's all right. Take, take, I, I dropped a marker, so no worries. <coughs> yeah, you can... A lot of... There are a lot of... Uh, unforgivable sins that you can, uh, that, that used to be, you know, basically, uh, grounds for getting fired that, uh, that, uh, sure, that you yeah. get away with in pro tools and, and these other digital platforms. I, I guess it's a good thing. I, I'm not really sure. I think that, um, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, what, what were some things that you remember learning from Ken at that point? You know, as he told stories of working with the Beatles and stuff, do you remember picking up on any kind of cool recording techniques or or just stuff that you'd never realized before? Well, you, every day that Ken was here and working with uh, the people that he worked with was sort of a, a revelation. I mean, because his, you know, he by the time I met Ken and we started working in the studio together, he'd already had twenty years of nonstop you know, production engineering experience. He came up through the EMI Abbey Road, you know, engineering school. And, uh, you know, he had been doing that ever since he was 17 years old. So it was, uh, there was never, I don't think there was ever a time when he was in the studio with us that, that we didn't learn something. One of the things that I learned very early on was how great a kick drum can sound with nothing in it at all 
and with both heads on. What do you mean by nothing? Oh, just empty, like no pillow in the middle. Totally empty kick drum. And what Ken did, I think one of the first things he did when he came in here is he he unsoldered a mic cables, put both heads on. I mean, unsoldered a mic cable, fed it through one of the air holes, soldered it back on to the connector, and then suspended an RE20 in the middle of this uh, 26-inch bass drum with nothing in it. And it just sounded gigantic and amazing. And And yeah, it was, it had some ring to it, but once everything else was in the track, you could, you it just occupied this very, very sort of unique sonic space. And, and when you listen to all those, those records, I mean, Ken, Ken did uh, a bunch of Billy Cobham records and, you know, he did Birds of Fire by Ma, Bob, Ma Vishnu. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, a. There's so much that, you know, he, he got to learn and experience during his uh were the, Now, were any of those, were those records that he was doing there as well, or those are records he had done? No, those are records that he did before I met him, when he cool. was still in England. Cool. He moved uh, to the United States in, I think, 1972 or three. Uh, and to finish the first Supertramp record, which was Crime of the Century. Well, let's talk about um, some of the bands that you worked in the hair metal scene of the 1980s. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you I know you worked with Dokken, Great White, White Lion, all bands that were coming there. Um, and it's funny you talk about kick drums, because that was actually one of the questions I threw in just talking about the metal scene and, you know, the introduction of this pointy kick drum that just cuts right through a mix. And I wondered if you, you know, if you got any more thoughts about that, that's fine. But otherwise, just tell us the story of the the metal scene there and and what it meant for recording in the studio. Well, I mean, it was, uh, I, I think that it's hard to, to, to quantify what it meant because, uh, it became, you know, there was a, a race basically to figure out how to to make this stuff sound bigger and bigger and bigger. And, yeah. and at the same time, maintain some sort of separation and stuff. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, Mike Wagner was, became one of the architects of that stuff and, and his records, uh, I think spelled out a lot of and, and led uh, sort of the vanguard of of how to do that. And I think Michael, I, I'm not sure. I think Michael is the first person that I ever met who uh, who introduced and he introduced it to me when in the very early 1980s when we were still working on an MCI console. He had this idea that it might be interesting to. <clears throat> to bus all of the drums and bass to another compressor and bring it up on two faders in parallel with the mix that we had going. Oh, nice. Yeah. Rockstars, you know what we're talking about here. You know yeah. what he's hinting at. And that was, and I remember listening to it and going, wow, yeah, that makes a big difference. 
And so I think that, you know, Michael is the very first person I ever saw uh, do a parallel compression on on a analog console. That's wild. What a cool story. Um, and, uh, and so, I mean, and Michael is very inventive uh, and, and, and one of those guys who was always chasing uh, a way to make it sound uh, bigger and more aggressive. And, and in those days, that's that's what mattered. You know, that's the, and, and he was, he was, he was great at getting the work done on time, on budget. And, uh, he made a lot of, a lot of those records, uh, a lot of the important records of that time. And he worked here for a while and, uh, and he was, uh, the reason he worked here was because Dokken, uh, he worked with Dokken over in Germany and, and Don Dokken was responsible for actually bringing him over here and getting him set up. And at the time, Don Dokken was working almost exclusively here at this studio. And mm -hmm. Well, a couple of the records that I, I found, you know, just kind of following your discography to YouTube and, and, and putting those in the, the playlist, um, Great White Hooked um, and then Great White Shot in the Dark and such a difference in sound too. You know, Great White Hooked sounds more like um, sort of a pure rock band recording. And then Great White Shot in the Dark is this massive, you know, pointy kick drum, exploding reverb snare and, and really, you know, wall of guitars. And so it was going to lead me to the question about the progression of sound. And you've already answered. You just said it was like a, it was an arms race of yeah. production styles trying to like make a bigger and badder record um, along the way. And, and we're only, I mean, you know, what's the time frame of that, that progression of, of, hair metal production styles. I mean, we're talking well, about like seven years, six years, five years, or, or more than you're that. Talking, you're talking about, uh, you know, the the first really big Mutt Lang production. You know, I mean, it really started when, when Def Leppard made that record and the record in the song Photograph hit. Yeah, uh, the, Pyromania. The yeah, Pyromania. That record sold 8 million copies in the first like you know four or five months it was out and that woke up the record industry to the idea that this form of music uh could really generate huge amounts of profit and numbers and so that's what everybody started going after now fast forward just a few years and 1991 and Nirvana never come never mind comes out and you know I remember hearing that that sold 20 million copies and and I don't know whether that was more or less than you know previous uh, record sales but I remember you know uh having the impression that that was like it was a new remarkable number of of copies of records to be sold and same thing happened all of a sudden the record labels through the 90s were just pouring money at um independent music and stuff like that. And, you know, and then that ushers Which, in a know, new era for you guys too, right? Yeah, sort of ushered in a new era, but it's also really uh, sort of, you know, it's funny. These guys want to start pouring money into independent artists, which actually completely erases their independence. Right, I mean, it's a, right. It's a weird thing because, you know, once you start pouring money into these bands, it stops them from being actually what they what they were and uh 
so it's a it was a it was a strange time. The bands that uh, No Doubt and uh, Sublime were in those days truly still little independent bands that were on very small labels that uh, had and they had limited resources <clears throat> and uh, and when they were in the studio recording they didn't have a you know they did there was <clears throat> they didn't have this giant corporate machine behind them they had you know themselves and their their own creative energy and their own creative vision and I think that's what uh what made those records really special uh the 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 they were they were it was sort of a a a return all the way back to the beginning for us when uh, we were working with s s t and you know these young bands that had uh you know very little but they had a passion and an energy and uh and made really important records and and it turned out that that was true you know the, those records are still uh, the records that uh, that those bands made and started and, and here and uh, are still super important to a lot of people of that generation. You know, what? I can't tell you how many young people walk through here and see, you know, the the records on our wall from, you know, the Sublime self-titled record, and they're just awestruck. You know, yeah, that's so cool, man. Yeah. And and I mean, you know. Uh, uh, a band like No Doubt, I think of those as records where the band was just trying really hard to perform great as a band to get get that kind of sound. And even listening to some of the progression of the metal records, like the two great white records I, I mentioned, um, and I, I'm not sure exactly about the timing, but I think it was like early 80s, late 80s. Um, and the, uh, you know, the first one, the early one sounds like the band performing together. The last one sounds like it's produced a little bit more one thing at a time and, you know, everything's dialed in just right. And of course it does have a huge sound, but then, you know, that whole system breaks down to the basics again. And then the next post-punk generation is just bands just trying to perform together. Um, and then eventually that becomes something where everything's trying to be done one piece at a time. And that's, you know, enter Lidge, the late nineties is when I entered the wrecking making record making scene and was going through that experience for the first time of trying to figure out how to build a record one brick at a time. Yeah, well, that's a, you know, that that is one, uh, that's one technique, but it's interesting. Uh, I'll say this, that just recently I've been working on some stuff from a, with a band from Iceland and a band from Sweden and, uh, and both the bands are rock bands. They're, you know, sort of guitar based. I mean, they're ignoring all the current trends of music, but they're recording this stuff as bands. And, uh, and a lot of what I do nowadays is mixing. So it's, I, I, I wish I was doing more of the production recording side, but it's just hard to get people all in one room anymore. But, uh, mm. But these bands, you know, that energy can't be replaced. You know, having people in a room together making these records and and playing as a unit. It's 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 something that you can't replicate any other way. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't make a good record, but it doesn't it's not the same as 
as having people camped out into a studio for, you know, three or four weeks, chasing down great takes and and making changes and listening to each other in real time and making adjustments and coming into the student control room and going, you know what, I'm going to do that a little different this time. Uh, it's a it's a whole different different sort of ball game. Yeah. I, I'm, I miss that so much because it's it's such an important and wonderful part of 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 making records. Well, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I really took a good close look at what I loved about whatever I do recently. The answer to my question was I love spending a day in the studio making music with friends. Yeah. And, you know, I like having a group of people playing together. Um, you know, it's easy for us to start screwing with that. Um, you know, we start isolating ourselves into different rooms and we we sort of rip apart the fabric of what it means to play together. But as long as you can keep that together and keep people feeling connected and, you know, I can see your hands strumming the guitar and you can see mine, um, there's a there's an opportunity to get that energy of the whole band playing together that just makes it a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And the records that we started talking about, you know, those kids are not virtuosos. You know, they're, they're, they have a, a spirit and an energy in their playing, but, you know, you can't put, you know, a, a piece of complicated music in front of them uh, printed on a, you know, lead sheet and, and say, okay, play this right now because that's not who they are, but you put them all in a room together and they make a noise that nobody else is going to make. And it's a, and that's, and that's what people connect to. People connect to that energy and to that honesty and to that, you know, that furiousness of creativity that, that, uh, and it's, uh, and I don't really, I strongly believe there's no way to replicate that, uh, in any other way. And, and the the sad thing about the way the music business is today is that there is not enough incentive left for people to take enough time to spend in the studio because the only place where there's any money left is in live performance. And so people have to stay on the road. They play all the time. The guys are away from their families longer. And, uh, and even when they want to, it's hard to justify, all right, let's take six weeks off and make a record. It's it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult to, to make that happen with the kind of schedules and responsibilities because there's not enough back end money in the recording part of it to make it make sense anymore. Well, let me ask you this question about <laughs> the production process and about um, a band performing together in a space versus ripping that apart and saying, "Oh, let's just build it one thing at a time and get it perfect." What are some of the things that you've seen that tend to cause a band to start progressing towards let's just get this one part perfect and then get this one part perfect and and you begin to lose that performance aspect um are there common themes that tend to always sort of pull pull productions in that direction well it depends on where the creative center of gravity is with the in the production in the band uh i think that um that can that's usually where that starts. And it, there are two different ways that, that that can happen. One of them is that somebody has an expectation of so, something they want to hear and they really can't hear it any other way. There's no other way for them to relate to it. And so they just want to hear it this one way. And sometimes the only way to get it there is to tear it apart and just 
you know, do it a little bit at a time uh, because for whatever reason, they didn't do it before they got here. Mm-hmm. And the other reason is that you have somebody who's not part of the writing or creative process who thinks that by tearing it apart, you're going to make it somehow a lot better. And, uh, and that, and that I think a lot of times falls on us, you know, the, the people who are, who are, who rightfully so, you know, people come into the studio, they want to work with, you know, a professional engineer and they assume that we know what we're talking about. So if we tell them, Hey, you know, all right, everybody, just, you know, play down one guide track and then we're going to do the drums, then we're going to do the guitar, then we're going to do the bass. You know, they believe us. Mm-hmm. And, and so you got to be careful <clears throat> what kind of advice you give to young artists and to the people you're working with. And, you know, remember that it's not all about it being perfect. It's all about, you know, how it feels, what what makes sense for the song, what makes sense for what the artist is trying to communicate. That's, that's the thing that's most important. So are we sometimes right as a producer to suggest that we should break it down and, and really focus on one thing at a time and get it right? Or is that more often than not wrong? Right and wrong is, you know, completely subjective, right? Was that a trick question? (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 what's right and what's wrong. But I I can tell you, what's wrong is when people walk away feeling like the song does no longer uh, feels like what they imagined it would feel like. Yeah, and and uh, look, you and I are going to get to make records you know, over and over again with all kinds of different people. We owe it to the people that come into our studios and to work with us to make a record that they can be proud of, that they can live with, that they can feel represents what they wanted to come away with. Not what we think is great, but yeah. what they think is great. Because yeah. because I'm going to get to do this over and over, but the people I work with, if they're lucky, they'll make two or three records in their whole lifetime. and. So the important thing is to make the record that they want to make and to help steer it in the best way you can for the best outcome for them. But a lot of times, and if that means taking it all apart, you know, and completely unwinding it and saying, let's start, you know, then so be it. But I think a lot of times uh, that is done for our benefit rather than theirs. Yeah. I think about hiring a painter recently for my house and it's like there are things that they did really really well and and when they suggested we might want to paint the house a certain way here or there and then I see it I'm like oh that looks killer great I love it. That's different than them trying to make me want to paint it a certain color that I'm just not feeling, you know. Right. <laughs> like I I got to pick the right color. So I I think that's great advice man. I know it's an odd analogy but um, you know, it's part of that the, that concept of us being in a service industry and capacity to serve we, the art of the bands. We're vectors for their creativity. Yeah, that's nice. what it's supposed to be. That's what that's our job. It's not our job isn't to be, 
you know, I mean, unless you see yourself as some sort of genius songwriter who is collaborating with the artist, that's a, I mean, that's a different sort of skill set. And, you know, and, and some people do that and they do it amazingly well. And it's a, and, and they get incredible results. But I think in general, audio engineering is, uh, we're a conduit, you know, to mm-hmm. an end that, that we need to respect. And, and I think that's a, that's something that, and when you start tearing stuff apart and you start doing it a, a little bit at a time, you, you rob that, uh, you know, a lot of, like I said, I, I don't know how else to say it. It's really just quite simply, I see it a lot of times as benefiting us more than them. Because then we get to have control over every little aspect of what we've recorded. And then maybe we can make it sound, you know, competitive in a way that uh, that we think it should be competitive. But really our responsibility is to capture their performance and then make it competitive. Nice. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle bundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Well, cool. Well, um, one of the common threads across all these genres that we talked about are guitars, electric guitars, electric guitars, electric guitars. Can we dig in and talk about recording guitars for a moment? Sure. Um, what do you feel are some of the common mistakes that people make when recording guitars, whether it's a punk record, a metal record, post-punk. Maybe talk about metal for a moment, because that certainly is one where there's a lot of attention um, put on the details of it. Punk may have been, well, just talk about them all. What's the difference between guitar and getting the guitars right in all three of those genres? I mean, well, you know, punk records are just, you know, you set up a, a mic in front of the guitar and uh in front of the amp in you know placing the mic where you think it'll represent best what is coming out of that amp and then that's the end of it i mean after that i mean you, you don't you don't see greg in coming in and doubling his guitar and then changing it changing guitars and tripling it with a different guitar and then playing it in another octave and you know all that kind of stuff it doesn't happen uh so, you know, just capturing, you know, something honestly in punk is has was has always been 
you know, the most important mm -hmm. uh, part of it. You know, in metal, it's just creating, you know, uh, the most, you know, <laughs> you know, you, if you, uh, especially, uh, I mean, even in the grunge era and, you know, uh, and the metal era, it's, it's all been about just making, doing whatever you have to do to make the guitars sound gigantic. And, you know, there are as many techniques for doing that as there are engineers, but, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, my favorite tool is to run Jonathan Little's little lab box into like a couple, three or four different heads and, and combo amps and, and have the guitar player play them and, and get a, get a mixture between something that has some punch in it, something that has a lot of saturation and something that, uh, that has a lot of, uh, tonefulness to it. And, you know, combine those to something that, that you can capture in a single performance and then, uh, change guitars and double it up. That's, that's what I like to do. Nice. Um, we were just talking about that recently with John Paterno, the PCP, the Little Labs PCP, which I have yeah. here too. Which yeah, I love that thing. Lets you, you know, route out to three amps. I think you can daisy chain the PCP too if you want to send it to six amps or whatever yeah, you, you want. Yeah, you can. Right? Yeah, Jonathan Little is a wonderful human being and uh, and uh, a brilliant tech, and that's a really great box. I mean, if uh, if you want to. If you want to run more than one amp, you got to have one of those boxes. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's an off-the-shelf uh, essential tool for recording guitars. That's know. great. That's great. Yeah, Rockstars, I encourage you to check out Little Labs. Um, some of the other tools I know that are very useful to come from there are the IBP phase alignment tool. So you, oh, can, yeah. you can sort of phase align your direct bass channel with your amp. Um, I guess you could use the IBP to just kind of phase align two guitar amps too, if you want. Well, you can also phase align two amps, two microphones on a single amp, right? Which is which is one of the, you know, I think that the rule is, as it was explained to me, was that the microphones have to be twice as far apart from each other as they are from the source. Right. So uh, when you put two if you want to put two microphones pointing at exactly the same part of the speaker, uh, that's hard to do. Follow that rule. So Jonathan's little in-between phase uh, thing helps delay and separate the polar patterns of those microphones so that you can pretend like they were uh, placed properly. And it's, it's really stunning how different it sounds as you uh, – roll across his uh that pot that changes the phase by uh degrees that's yeah. cool that's cool um and also i wrote down a great great quote from you basically there are as many different techniques for recording as there are engineers i, I modified it slightly how you said yeah. it but that's a great quote um all right so you know we've got an, a guitar splitting out to lots of amps for for the kind of metal um, approach and being able to, you know, have a variety of tones to work with. Um, anything coming from the post-punk era that that's helpful, or is that sort of more of the same 
uh, things we've just described? Well, um, I think that, uh, you know, they're in the eighties and, uh, and to some degree in the nineties, there was this, I think a lot of it in the eighties, there was this, this, uh, this idea that drums, uh, need to be recorded and represented as uh, discrete little sounds. Uh, uh, you know, there's a tom-tom, and then there's another tom, and there's a kick drum, and then there's a... there's. And I think it, it was sort of a holdover from the disco era and the drum machine era. And, uh, and I think that uh, one of the things that I decided, you know, and... Uh, the early nineties or something was that a drum set is in a single instrument and that every part of it that interferes with every other part of it is part of the beauty and sound of that instrument. And that, you know, it's important to capture that just like you capture the band, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You can't, you know, uh, putting gates on things and, and all that stuff. I think it just robs the, the drums of the energy and, and overtone series. And, you know, the, just the whole, uh, the whole beauty of the instrument, which, uh, is one of the, the great parts of rock music is, uh, is the drummer and, uh, and how much energy and how much difference that can make in a record, you know, huge. Well, so do you have any tricks for us? Um, if we're going to talk about drums, um, you know, any techniques or tricks that help us capture that drum set as a whole instead of being just individuals? Oh, absolutely. Here's my, here's my, my recommendation. And if you've never done it, you've got to do it at least once just to, so you can hear it is use a couple of Cole's 4038s overhead of the drums, you know. Those are uh, those microphones are magic and and they're dark and they're not you know what most people would go oh yeah I want to capture the top set of the drum but they capture the whole drum set I mean you could just record the entire drum set with just those overheads and it would sound great yeah uh, and the other thing about them is that they take EQ and you know and uh, you know, a cut and, and boosting of different frequencies there, there, those ribbon mics are so awesome that, uh, you can do almost anything to them and they'll sound wonderful. And, uh, except blow on them. <laughs> yeah. Don't blow on them and don't keep turning the phantom power off and on while they're plugged in. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, what about mic preamps? Have you found, uh, any preamps to be preferable to others as far as whatever The greatest mic preamp that, that was ever built in my opinion was built by dean jensen right before he passed away it was called a boulder and uh you don't see them very much because they didn't build very many of them but uh the boulder mic preamps are you know if you ever see one for sale anywhere buy it buy it immediately and uh and you'll never look back it's it, it you know um john hardy tried to replicate it in the twin servo Per version of his Jensen, mm -hmm. his, 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 which he actually got permission to use the uh, 
the circuit that Dean Jensen developed for his mic pre. Uh, after Dean passed away, uh, John Hardy got permission to use that twin servo because it was a proprietary uh, way of building that mic pre. But Dean's version of the mic mic pre is, a, you know, it was a hand built uh, thing that has a giant triodial transformer in it. I mean, you know, each one of them weighs like 20 pounds <laughs> and, uh, and they are, you know, they don't have, uh, they don't have the personality of a 1073 or, but they are so linear and so immediate, you know, that, uh, I've had a lot of engineers come in here and use those mic pre's and tell me that they they never heard a drum set sound like that before they plugged them into those mic pre's. Now, are these the ones that that um, you retrofitted into your console, or are these outboard? No, mic these are outboard mic pre's that Dean built uh, as a you know as a product uh, in partnership with a company out of Denver called Boulder. Boulder later on went out went on to be some ultra high-end hi-fi uh, company that builds, you know, home theater system for people who have, you know, $80,000 to spend on a CD player. Right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the mic priest that they built with Dean um, uh, are just absolutely stunning and still amazing. And, Jensen transformers that still operate out of Chatsworth continue to support them. You know, you'll take you if if anything happens to one of them, you take them there. They honor uh, Dean's legacy and memory by making sure that these things work and and they can fix them and they can recap them and they can you know it's a uh, so seriously that that you know. If you put me on a desert island with a couple of coals, a couple of Jensen Mike Prees, and uh, maybe an Avalon, you know, uh, 2044, I'd be okay. <laughs> you might need some power. Yeah, I might need, I might need, yeah, well, that's true. Power is important. Okay, cool, man. Um, well, this has been a wonderful interview. Let's Let's jump to the ending here, and we'll ask a couple of our outro questions. Um, and again, thank you for joining us here, Wynn. This is great hearing all these stories. It's like, uh, I feel like I'm beginning to, I'm, I'm going back in time and living some of this, these uh, different eras on, on Redondo Beach, and it's pretty cool. Now I want to go watch uh, Blow, the movie with Johnny Depp, one more time and, and <laughs> see all that again. But um, when you started back in recording, what do you feel like was holding you back? Uh I didn't know anything about recording. I don't, I didn't, I don't have a degree in electrical engineering and what I needed when I came into the studio was somebody who, who, who had the technical background and to help me understand what I was supposed to be doing. And Peter, the guy that I mentioned earlier, Peter, Butt, you know, he was a, a great, great teacher and was uh he wasn't the most patient person in the world but it didn't keep me from asking the same questions over and over and over he taught me how to the importance of how to bias and align a tape recorder and and why it was important and how to troubleshoot 
electronics without, you know, jumping to conclusions, how to approach uh, solving technical issues in ways that actually made sense. And, you know, so that's what sort of held me back in the beginning. And once I got my, uh, once I started to get a footing there and I felt like I actually knew how all these pieces connected together, uh, that helped a lot. That was, a, that was an important step. Now, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving? Uh, the best advice was, uh, you know, early, very early advice from Ken when I was trying to make a record. And he, I said, you know, what, what would you say the most important thing is? He said, well, it's most important is that it's in time and that it's in tune. You know, <laughs> those, two, those two things right there can make your record sound, you know, can make anything you're working on sound way, way better than it otherwise would. And, and uh, I think uh, it seems, sounds obvious, but it is the truth. If uh, <clears throat> you can take something that's really, really great, and if it's all, if it's all over the map groove-wise and, and the tuning is all messed up, it's you know, almost impossible to make it relatable to anybody. But uh, on the other side, if you take a marginal song and it's sort of grooving and it, and it has a, uh, and it's in tune, and keep people attention. can listen. Yeah, people can listen to it. I guess that could be the reason sometimes to begin breaking down your recording into one thing at a time. If if that would, if it's not in time and it's not in tune, and that's the next step to try and get it there. That's true, and and there is, and the and that is, uh, you know, um, it's funny because we're talking about Ken. Ken was much more uh, a, a very. Uh, piece at a time sort of engineer and he is very very he is very much a guy who uh who would pull all the bits apart and put them back together in ways that uh that amazed me all the time and amazed the people that he worked with but but I could never I could I could never replicate that the only time I ever get close is when I let people play together and that's an important thing to let people know before you start working is that, Hey, make sure you, uh, make sure you take some time to make sure your instruments are ready and that you're prepared and that you have a, that, you know, you play to a click a little bit, you can get a, get a sense of how this should be put together. And, uh, and you're going to have a way better chance of coming out with something that, that you love and that, people will be able to listen to. Yeah, it's like get it in time and get it in tune before you hit the studio. Yeah, that's do that that part of the homework. Just do that much and we'll take care of the rest for you. Now, how about sharing a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something the rock stars can use on their next session? Uh, I already gave that to you, man. Uh, that would that would be the <laughs> that would be the uh, the coals, the 43rd yeah. case. I already gave it to you, and I'm giving it to you again because there's a reason. You're supposed to use that one. <laughs> that, 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 those overhead mics. There's this other uh, little box that I, uh, that if you've never used one, you should play around with someday. It's called a, it's made by, and I don't know if they, if they're still making them, but it's made by this, uh, this company out of Scotland called CLM. And it's this uh, dynamic equalizer called an expounder. I like the name. 
and it actually uh, does some amazing things. And if you ever get a chance to sit down with one or you find one in a pawn shop or in an auction, grab it because they are uh, they are really uh, they're really something they they have ways of they like it's like it's an analog version of these uh frequency based eqs Mm -hmm. that uh that that actually expand the bands that you select that's cool yeah Yeah. i've I've only just started uh experimenting with um dynamic eqs and there's just it's it gets deep yeah, the the digital ones get get deep. They're easier to use because they're usually um, represented by uh, some sort of visual interface. So that, that that makes them a little bit easier to use. But they, I haven't really found too many that sound as good as the analog versions. It's funny, the analog gear uh, is still replicated uh i would say that i would say here here's another tip find you know you know three or four or five pieces of analog gear that you love and hang on to them because they'll always be they'll always be great i mean my my workflow includes you know a a hybrids a hybrid uh mixing environment where I work on uh, analog and in the box stuff and, and have a bunch of hardware inserts. And they, uh, I have, for instance, I have three 1176s. Now universal audio makes a really nice model of 1176. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like any of the ones that I own and the three that I own don't sound anything like each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there you go. I don't know which one, which, 1176 they modeled they found one that they liked the way it sounded but the thing about analog gear is it's continuously uh magical and variable and uh and it's and it's one of the reasons why the records made during the time period that you mentioned in my bio all sound completely different from one another no records made during that time sound the same they all have completely different sonic fingerprints all over them. And when you listen to them one after the other, whether you're listening to Hendrix or the Beatles or the Who or the Stones or anybody, none of those records sound the same. You can't say that today. You know, that's, that's a not, good point. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, cool, man. Well, um, speaking of which, any other uh, favorite hardware tools you want to mention? Hardware tools. Anything that you're always glad you got it when you make a record, something physical? Yeah, well, the boulders and the and the uh, and the forty thirty eights. Those uh, those are like my favorite things. I also um, uh, I, I love a couple of langs. If you have one, a couple of those laying around. Uh, the mic pre's? No, the lang uh, EQs. Oh, the lang EQs. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how about favorite, uh, software tools, anything that you've found really useful or you're just excited about now? You know, I just found, uh, this, uh, this plugin, uh, just funny. You should mention that. I just found this plugin recently <coughs> made by two, you know, that is a tube tech plugin modeled by soft tube, which is their 
you know, their, their pull tech, you know, the tube techs pull tech, uh, EQ, I can't remember what the, what the model number of it is, but it's something that's, I think it's actually been out for a while, but you know, I used it the other day and, and I thought, man, this thing has, uh, one of the few digital EQs that feel really like it has some personality, some, some softness to it, some, you know, uh, some sort of sonic silkiness that, uh, that I really dug. Is it the two tech CL1 or CL2? Yeah. 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 <laughs> CL1, I think. Nice. Yeah. And the, uh, the one that that Softube makes, and the other thing that that is indispensable in indispensable in my view is George Massenberg's you know EQ mm-hmm. digital EQ inside of any workstation. I mean, it is the quintessential problem solver EQ. You know, if you you have anything that is bothering you, you can fix it with that. That's, that reminds me, I need to get one of those. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. bringing it up again. They are they are they are amazingly useful in that world. Yeah, that's cool. All right, well, let's jump to the final question here. Um, we're going to take the Wayback Studio Machine, and you're going to go back in time, and and you're going to find um, young Win and say, come up to your say, stop riding your skateboard for a minute. I want to tell you this bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could? Um, buy the building that you're renting. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I mean, of, uh, that would be one. The other one, I guess, would be uh, would be be patient with yourself and and understand that you're going to get better. It's like anything else. If you put in the time and you put it in honestly, you're going to get a return. And the return is you're going to get better at it. You just got to give yourself a break. I mean, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of pressure on people when they come in to record something. And, you know, when it's your responsibility to capture it, you feel there's a huge responsibility sitting there. And it can it can cause you to, to uh, experience a lot of anxiety and stress where I think if if I could do anything for myself back then, it would have been to uh, and anything I could for anybody else who's just starting out would be to just, you know, if you're really committed to doing this, just give yourself a break and just realize that, you know, the only way to get better is to make some mistakes. That's, you know, and to and to have somebody, you know, disappointed from time to time, you'll learn from all of those things and all those experiences and try and try and understand that that's, that's part of it is uh, part of getting better is, is making some mistakes. And I'm going to reiterate your own advice, which is, um, you know, make a real effort to try and make the record that the artist and the band you're working with wants to make, because you're going to get to make a lot of these just by doing it over and over. Exactly. That's, that's an important, that's an important thing. Super important to me. Cool. Well, Wynn, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars. Just a blast to hear all these stories and get to hang out with you for a couple hours here. How can the Rockstars find you guys online, follow you? What if they want to come make their next record on the beach? Where, do, where should they go? Uh, you can go to uh, 
tarecording.com, and you can find us on Facebook. It's uh, Facebook slash total.access.recording. We're there, and um, reach out to us. And I'm on Facebook, Wynn Davis. Uh, Look me up. I try and answer, you know, any questions and, and respond to anybody who wants to reach out. So thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to share some of this stuff. And uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Steve. And we appreciate you being here. Oh, excuse me. I just said Steve, because I meant yeah. to thank Steve again as well. Yeah. So thank you, Wynn. And thank you also to Steve for uh, for making the introduction. Um, and hope to see you guys um, in person soon and come see the studio and visit. Come. You know, definitely. I was going to say, you get out here, you come see us for sure. All right. And, uh, and uh, you just... You don't even call, just show up. <laughs> I love it, man. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Um, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Okay. Thank you. All right, cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com slash email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lid Shaw, and and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.